0: Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and as part of our Smithsonian Associates Women's History Month series, we have an excellent program about women's fight for equality, how women use the vote in the United States, and the diverse struggle of women's rights in the U.S. Our guest today is Smithsonian Associate Journalist, historian, and activist Elizabeth Griffith, who has written the new book, Formidable, American Women and the Fight for Equality, 1920 to 2020. Thank you so much for listening today. We have got a great guest today for Women's History Month with Smithsonian Associate Author Elizabeth Griffith, who is a journalist, activist, historian, and author, and who, after reading her new book, Formidable, American Women and the Fight for Equality. I have been looking forward to speaking with her for a while. I'll introduce her in just a moment. But quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 701st episode when I spoke to science writer Lizzie Stark about her new book, Egg. Two weeks ago, I spoke with returning guest, Smithsonian associate journalist, fan favorite here on the program, and author Rebecca Boggs-Roberts, who has written the new book, Untold Power, The Fascinating Rise, and Complex Legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson. Excellent subjects for our Not Old Better show audience, especially during Women's History Month. If you miss those shows, along with any others, you can go back and check them out, along with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. After what Susan B. Anthony called the long, hard fight, the 19th Amendment enfranchising 26 million white and black women was added to the Constitution on August 26, 1920. However, according to our guest today, Smithsonian Associate Elizabeth Griffith, the 19th Amendment was an incomplete victory. Join Elizabeth Griffith and me as we talk about her upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation, Black and White Women Who Fought Hard for Voting Rights, and doubled the number of eligible voters, but how the amendment did not enfranchise all women or even protect the rights of those women who can vote. A century later, women are still grappling with how to use the vote and their political power, diversity, and all else to expand civil rights, confront racial violence, improve maternal health, advance educational and employment opportunities, and secure reproductive rights.
1: I titled the author's note, "Storylines." There has always been more than one American story. The most popular account was about conquering a continent and creating a country, about democracy and manifest destiny. It was filled with explorers, exploiters, frontiersmen, military leaders, statesmen, inventors, and entrepreneurs. The story was revered, written down, and widely taught, but it wasn't the whole story. This book recounts what American women did after the 19th Amendment passed. It focuses on how white and black women slowly accrued and used political power. Their struggles for equal rights had long been interwoven. White women had been complicit in slavery. Others had fought for emancipation. The abolition movement of the 1830s inspired the women's rights movement of the 1840s. The suffrage campaign engaged and excluded black activists. The civil rights movement of the 1950s inspired the women's movement of the 1960s. Black and white women adapted each other's tactics, educating, organizing, demonstrating, boycotting, sitting in, filling jails, and keeping on. However disparate, the equal rights and civil rights movements were both part of the unfinished fight for liberty and justice for all women are a complex cohort. They differ by race, ethnicity, class, geography, religion, education, occupation, generation, marital and maternal status, sexual orientation, ability, politics, and experience. It's a risk to categorize or generalize because real people have multiple and individual identities. Say her name was a demand by Black activists that we acknowledge the Black women as well as the men who were victims of police violence. Historians of women like me want women to be visible, remembered, incorporated into the canon, and included in the curriculum. I've named as many women as possible, both major and minor characters, to put them in the story. I use their full names, their name at birth, their married names, if any. Martha Dandridge Custis Washington, would get her full name. Because I'm writing American history about black and white women, racism is part of this story. It cannot be whitewashed or deleted. Slavery sanctioned the violent sexual assault of black women by white men, from slave ship crews to plantation owners, who enslaved and sold their black children. Slave labor contributed enormously to the country's economic growth. Race, racism, and racial violence are part of our shared past, not theories or un-American propaganda. Because these topics make some people anxious, ashamed, or angry, writing about them can be fraught with peril. In June 2021, President Biden went to Tulsa to mark the centennial of the 1921 massacre of a prosperous Black community by a white mob, an event still not included in textbooks. We should know the good, the bad, everything, he declared. That's what great nations do. They come to terms with their dark history. And we are a great nation. We need to be mature enough to both confront and celebrate our history. Historians have a responsibility to be truthful witnesses and accurate recorders. In this chronicle of American women fighting for equal rights, I have aspired to be factual, inclusive, and respectful telling a story worthy of its subjects.
0: That, of course, is our guest today, Elizabeth Griffith, reading from her new book, Formidable, American Women and the Fight for Equality, 1920 to 2020. Elizabeth Griffith will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up, so please check out our show notes today for more details. But we have Elizabeth Griffith ourselves today. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates interview series. During Women's History Month on radio and podcasts, we are celebrating Women's History Month with historian, activist, and Smithsonian Associate Elizabeth Griffith. Elizabeth Griffith, welcome back to the program.
1: I'm delighted to be talking to you again. I'm um, very pleased that the Smithsonian Associates uh, host so many programs about women's history.
0: Well, it's a perfect time for us to do that. Of course, it is uh, the 1st of March, and um, March is Women's History Month. Smithsonian Associates has a very special celebration planned around your work and uh, some others, and, and I'm honored to talk to you again Um You've written this wonderful new book entitled Formidable. We're going to get into that. But let's let's jump into Smithsonian Associates a little bit and tell us about, about what you're going to be presenting at Smithsonian Associates, and, and in particular, how you're going to use Zoom to engage our audience. We're all on Zoom these days.
1: Well, I'm eager to introduce Formidable, the title of my book, but also the content of my book. I'm I uh, um. Uh, to Smithsonian Associates, the book begins in 1920 when the 19th Amendment was certified. It goes um, ends with the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, which sort of suggests the rise and fall of women's history up and down in the course of a hundred years. But that ten decades of political and social history is is full of this diverse cast of characters, these formidable change agents. And some of them will be known to the audience and some of them will not. So one of the reasons I'd like to have Zoom slides to illustrate a talk is so that people can have a a picture in their mind of the character And it, I think. I also learned after years of teaching that people learn in lots of different ways. So they can be listening to me, but to see something visual might reinforce what they've just heard and help them remember or enjoy the talk more. Um, my book is princ- the principal emphasis in my book is about Black and white women and their parallel tracks as they fought for expanded equal rights, um, both women's rights and racial rights. And these women who would have had a lot in common if they'd had much time to interact or much opportunity, they pursued different goals with different strategies and had different success rates.
0: Thank you for that. I I just think this is a fascinating subject, yeah, and the the timing is just uh, ideal for us and for our Smithsonian Associates audience. And so you're really writing about approximately 100 years of women's fight for equality, but not all women— really even had the right to vote after the 19th Amendment passes. And so maybe tell us about some of the women who were disenfranchised despite the 19th Amendment's passage and they didn't have the right to vote. What about their struggle?
1: Well, the 19th Amendment enfranchised 27 million American women. It more than doubled the electorate. It enfranchised white and black women, um, But black women's rights, since the majority of African-American women in this country were still living in the South, despite the great migration that would move them west and into the Midwest and into the East, into larger cities where they'd gain many more um, employment and educational and political opportunities. But the majority of African-Americans in 1920 were living in the South, where they were um, subject to not only racial violence, but Jim Crow Legal discrimination. Um, so their their rights were not protected, and in the same ways that black men had been disenfranchised with um, unequally applied literacy tests and poll taxes, and just a whole bunch of ways that you weren't you were barely allowed to register and to take any action, um, put you at risk of losing your job or your housing or your life. Um, uh, so. While black people had a legal right to vote, there was no federal um, assistance in protecting that right and nothing at the state level. So that's why um, suffrage, the whole suffrage fight doesn't really conclude until August of 1965 and passage of the Voting Rights Act, which um, got rid of tons of kinds of discrimination and for a brief period of time um, there's a huge um, increase in the number of black voters, the number of black young people, regist- old, old and young people registering. But as we've observed in the last 50 years, voting rights have been um, cut back and inhibited by various state legislatures and not only applying to blacks. The, for example, the poll tax, the poll tax would have applied to anybody who was poor in the South. Poll taxes could have been as high as $10. And in a, um if you're a sharecropper or a poor farmer, or, um, that's, that's a large amount of money in 1920. So even if you could afford it for yourself, you weren't necessarily going to pay it for your wife. So the 19th amendment, um, while it enfranchises black and white women, it does nothing to protect the rights of, 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 of black women, black women or men. And then other whole groups were not included. Um, at that time in 1920, Native Americans were not inc- not considered citizens. You can hear maybe a smile in my voice, but it's an ironic smile because the indigenous people, the first inhabitants of the continent, are not considered citizens by the people who took the land from. Um, and so there would be action to make them citizens, but the federal government can make um, people citizens. They passed, for example, the Native American Citizenship Act in 1924. But again, states are writing the rules about who gets to vote. And there were 14 states with very large um, Native American populations in the Northeast and across the upper Midwest and then down into um, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, where they weren't that keen to have um, Native Americans voting. Again, they wanted to maintain white majorities. In this case, in the case of... um, native voting um two women were uh, the primary movers in getting that native that piece of federal legislation passed um Gertrude Bonin and Marie Botineau. and Bonin's a very interesting case I'll, if you want me I I can tell you a little bit mm-hmm. more about her yes yeah, the please. but the, uh, well, let me tell you a little bit <laughs> more about yeah. um Gertrude Bonin. Gertrude Bonin was the name that was given to her Um, She was a Sioux woman and she had been um, taken away from her parents, um, and from a North Dakota reservation and where she'd been born in 1876. And she was sent to a government boarding school in Indiana. Her braids were cut. Her culture was disparaged. Her name was changed to Gertrude Simmons. Um, she would resume her name of Zitkala Sa, which meant Redbird, um, she would attend Earlham College uh, and uh, study violin at the Boston Conservatory. Hmm. She would perform for President McKinley. Um, and then she went to work at another boarding school. You'd think she would not want to, but what she, she was an undercover agent. She hmm. was writing exposés hmm. of the boarding school movement and how it damaged Native culture. Um, she would marry another boarding school survivor. And, went, and she would devote her career to rescuing Native languages and stories. In 1913, she co-wrote an um, an opera called The Sundance, wow. which was the first indigenous opera. It was based on Sioux rituals that had been um, prohibited by the federal government. And she would join this other woman, um, Marie um, Baldwin-Bottineau. The two of them would work with the Society of American Indians, and they would really push for the passage of this 1924 Indian Citizenship Act and a 1934 Indian Reorganization Act. Um, but as I say, they, the state still had enormous power over voting. And so and even today, even today, um, um, especially for um, indigenous tribes living on reservations where they do not have add street addresses because they don't live on streets. They have postal boxes or they have um, community centers. There's great dispute about what um, identification papers are required um, when you want to vote. And the voting places, because reservations are so large, the voting places can be miles and miles away. So there's still lots of issues. The other major group that was left out in the um, two major groups, um, in addition to Native Americans, Asian immigrants against whom um, America had had exclusionary immigration policies since 1882 that were not, they were changed first in 1943 because we were allied with the Chinese in the Second World War. And then throughout the 50s, more um, Asian American Pacific Islanders would be included. Um, But the lasting one is people who live in territories or in the District of Columbia where our voting rights are not same as people living in every other state. So while the 19th Amendment was a huge, big deal, um, that that half the population was now in, um, enfranchised, uh, it was not um, because it was not enforced, because it had some exclusionary parts. The, the language of the amendment didn't have exclusionary parts, but its language did not say, it said states, it did not say territories. Um the other thing the 19th amendment doesn't say is it doesn't use the word women. It says you cannot discriminate on account of sex. Um, and the word woman does not appear any place in the United States Constitution.
0: Elizabeth Griffith, I love the title of your book Formidable American Women and the Fight for Equality 1920 to 2020. It's getting rave reviews. Hillary Rodham Clinton says an essential History of the Struggle of Both Black and White Women to Achieve Their Equal Rights. The stories about these black and white women who have fought hard for their voting rights is really inspirational, but they also had some pretty formidable opponents. and
1: They did, the, and I do, it, it because us, my huh? book is inclusive, so uh-huh. I have to include the opponents. <laughs> right, right, sadly, <laughs>
0: there are some opponents.
1: Political points of view.
0: Yeah, yeah. Tell us a little bit about some of those opponents.
1: Well, um, let me first state that the 19th Amendment, the only people to vote in favor of the 19th Amendment were white men. Um, uh, There was an early, um, it passed in the House and was defeated in the Senate in the 1918 session. And Jeanette Rankin, who was the first woman elected to Congress, a Republican elected at large from Montana, who took her seat in 1917, voted in the Congress for ratification. A constitutional amendment requires a two-thirds vote in the House and the Senate, and then ratification by three-quarters of the states. Rankin was not re-elected, and so when the um, 19th Amendment finally passes in 1919, Uh, there are no women in the House. So only men, white men voted on it in the House and the Senate. And then when it goes to the state legislatures, only white men. So um, women recognize that they owe a lot to white male allies, but there were certainly a lot of of male opponents. Um, People who opposed uh, women voting saw it as Um, completely inappropriate behavior, that God did not create women to be voters. So um, ministers and politicians would preach against it. Politicians didn't want women in the political process. They were worried they would come in as reformers. Manufacturers had a similar um, outlook that women would uh, want safety protections on factory floors or would want to protect immigrant rights. White Southerners wanted nothing that might embolden Black voters, male or female. Saloon owners and brewers and liquor manufacturers were worried about the whole issue of prohibition. And women had a stake in um, male alcoholism because throughout the 19th century and the early years of the 20th century, when women had few legal rights to property ownership, custody of their children, the right to divorce, Um, if you were married to someone who drank up his wages between the time he was paid at noon on Saturday and he got home late Saturday, you were really at risk, not only of poverty, but of possible abuse. So women were involved in that issue. And there was this whole, you know, the patriarchy that men are the heads of households. And of course, they will represent their wives at the polling booths, um, which sort of ignores women who did not have, um, husbands or fathers or somebody to represent them. But men were not the only opponents. There were many, I mean, the number of people who supported suffrage was really a small percentage of the population, and it passes because it had brilliant strategic leadership. But the majority were sort of either indifferent or against. Many prominent women were against suffrage at the time of, in the period of the 1920s, because Um, as some privileged women feel today, they were in a class of their own. They were protected by their wealth. They felt secure. And um, two of the primary heads of the Women Opposed to Women's Suffrage Organization, one was married to a major senator, Senator Wadsworth's wife from New York, and the other was married to Wilson's second secretary of state, Robert Lansing. And these women Name, you know, it was Mrs. James Watsworth, It was Mrs. Robert Lansing. I had to go into the books to find their real names. Um, so there, so there's change is unnerving to people, and um, we saw it happen again in the 1970s after the turmoil of the 1960s: civil rights marches, anti-war marches, women's rights marches, um, sexual revolution, lots of um, rules and attitudes changing. Um, that you have the same pushback from people who are just alarmed by the pace of change, or offended by long-haired boys burning draft cards, or long-haired girls, you know, going without underwear. That was disconcerting. But there's a, there's a, there are similar bases of the social conservative um, cohort um, in southern um, in white southerners who um, had had a dominance over black voters, among Christian evangelicals who have very patriarchal views about family structure, and again, social conservatives. So there's always going to be pushback to any changes that come too soon. And I did, um, to be fair, I wasn't going to write just about the people who were, um, to me, feminist heroines, I had to include, of course the people who were leading the opposition
0: hi it's paul do you love entertaining informative eclectic insightful programs about culture health science life And everything Smithsonian. As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with Elizabeth Griffith. Elizabeth Griffith is a author. She's an American historian and educator and activist. She earned her Ph.D. from the American University, has been a Kennedy Fellow at Harvard University. Has written the new book, Formidable American Women and the Fight for Equality, 1920 to 2020. Elizabeth Griffith will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. Thursday, March 9th. Please check out our show notes for more details about Elizabeth Griffith's presentation titled American Women and the Fight for Equality. Elizabeth Griffith, you've been so generous to read a passage from your book. It was such a a well-chosen passage about race and racism and part of our shared past. And you mentioned that writing about those subjects can be fraught with peril. We we are a, a great nation. I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about Black and white women, in their struggle against some of these challenges uh, voting rights and 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 other rights, black and white women, did they struggle together? Did they have to fight separately what did what did racial equality mean to these women in this struggle?
1: Paul, thank you for asking that question. It's really the key theme of my book. Um, black and white women did not struggle together and sometimes struggled against each other and I believe that's because of how deeply rooted racism was in our country in the 19th century, um, and how Jim Crow and segregation, laws about segregation divided communities and individuals. Um, there's a there's a, there's a thread of um, reform in the white community that begins before abolition, but is fired up by abolition. And so many abolitionists became suffragists. Many suffragists um, had abolitionist roots, so they were um, maybe preconditioned to want to be allies of African Americans. But, But the national attitude about African Americans was that this was a population of enslaved people who were characterized all the time in demeaning ways Um, about the size of their brains, their resistance to pain. So many stereotypes got embedded in the culture. And many of those attitudes got absorbed even by the most liberal people in the country. And because of the way the country was geographically divided, um, and I need need to add here too, that there are, post-Civil War, you are going to have The first cohorts of college educated white women and the first cohorts of college educated black women. Um, Unlike the white community, which um, generally gave educational benefits first to sons rather than daughters, in the black community, daughters benefited because families wanted to protect their daughters from sexual predators in the South. So they would send them to Earlham or Oberlin or small women's colleges or black colleges um, to begin to get. Um, a a higher education and a professional degree to launch um, their careers and their families. So these were, you could have found women, middle class, educated, um, many of them married to ministers or to professional men who had biographies that were quite similar other than roots in um, slavery for black women and grandfathers who might have been white and impregnated their grandmothers which led to a lot of pale-skinned black people in the early generations here. But these women who should have been natural allies were not because of this infection of racism. They allied in, in several ways. There were black members of the National American Women Suffrage Association. There were black women who marched in the 1913 suffrage march, who picketed the White House. But they were always wary of white women, and rightfully so, Um, Susan B. Anthony, who would, you know, had proven abolitionist credentials, would um, rarely invite black women to participate or speak at suffrage conventions that she knew might be in locations that would attract southern white women. And the Suffrage March, um, Alice Paul, who organized that in 1913, is a Quaker, deep roots in abolition. And um, she decrees at the last moment that black women need to march at the back of the line behind black, behind white men. Um, and those black women basically ignore her. Some some choose to march there, but most march in the like Ida B. Wells is marching with the Illinois um, suffrage organizations that she helped found and Mary Church Terrell is marching with um, women in their academic gowns because she has earned a bachelor's and an undergraduate degree and she's marching with other black women in their academic gowns. So even in these most, what people would think of as the most liberal circles of America, um, there is plenty of racism and among the men there was plenty of sexism. And so, but, but, between 1915 and 1920, when suffrage crosses the finish line, Carrie Chapman Catt, who's the head of the National American Women's Suffrage Association, and in my mind, one of the most brilliant political strategists of the 20th century, pulls together and um, an and interracial, an intergenerational, a multi-ethnic national coalition, and she's fighting for suffrage at the state level, because if you got suffrage at the state level, then women were electing members of Congress, making it easier to get suffrage at the federal level. She's wooing Woodrow Wilson, who mostly opposes suffrage for most of his administration. She's pulling all these pieces together, and she gets suffrage over the finish line by a vote of one white Republican 24-year-old man in the Tennessee legislature. 27 million women were enfranchised by one vote, and the whole thing would have exploded and gone backwards, and who knows how long it would have taken to get suffrage if he had not changed his vote, because his mother asked him to. But then, so they win, and everyone who had a, who fought for suffrage had a reason to fight for suffrage, whether you're white, black, immigrant, factory woman, Jewish woman, you had a cause, and so the this coalition splinters into those causes. You're working for factory women's rights or immigrant rights or native women's rights or uh, anti-black violence. You're trying to end lynching and end Jim Crow. Or you have, you know, everybody's got a cause. And they don't see it as sort of an altogether cause. They saw it as their individual cause. So white women more than black women splintered. Black women, because they had this huge cause of racial violence, ending racial violence and ending Jim Crow, that's sort of a community cause. So they are not so much rivalrous among themselves, and they're appealing to white women to help them. But these very liberal white women would say that's a race issue, not a women's issue, which was wrong. Um, But this, so the division continues. And then... um, White women could act publicly. They could run for office or lobby the legislature or draft legislation, none of which they were very successful at doing. But for black women to do any political organizing was high risk. So they are sort of underground um, church deacons, uh, agricultural agents, nurses, teachers, and communities are spreading across the South trying to teach citizenship. And that will be the basis of the civil rights movement into the 1960s, into the freedom schools. So they are parallel, they're on parallel track, um, and they don't have much conversation between those two tracks.
0: Again, just fascinating. And so you talk a little bit about this idea of diversity and the coalitions and, uh, we talked about, uh, black women and, and, uh even some Native American women, where do Hispanic Latina women fall into this uh, activism? Did they have a cause?
1: They did, um, but they, um, so when we think of his, um, Hispanic Latina, mm-hmm. um, we're thinking of today's activists. Mm-hmm. And my book doesn't, my book covers them a little bit, but not enough. Because mm. as I say, trying to shove 10 decades of history into a book, which is pretty long. <laughs> um mm-hmm uh so the so the people who are leaders today have come really from 1965 forward from the change of the immigration law in 1965 under Lyndon Johnson but Hispanics in the 1920s would have been southwestern women whose families had been there forever um and there are two to draw attention to one um um uh, one I mentioned in my book, one, one I've only more recently learned about. So Soledad Chavez de Chacon in 1922 was elected to be secretary of state in New Mexico. So she's a Hispanic woman lead, le- leading um, in a, in a state leader, statewide leadership role. And as secretary of state, she will several times during her term be the acting governor of New Mexico. She won that election. In the same election in New Mexico... Adelina Otero-Warren is running for Congress, and she loses. Um, She is now going to be recognized on one of the new quarters. Um, Adelina decided not to run again because while she had been in elected office as um, superintendent of education in Albuquerque and some other roles and had been married twice, she, um, in the 1920s, had um, a same-sex partnership and recognized that that uh, was a risky position to be in in that era. So she and her partner instead became cattle ranchers. Um, but there are less, because it was not a very large part of the American population during this era, at the beginning years of the book, there's less attention paid to Hispanic women. A category that's significant throughout the book um, are Jewish women. Um major, there have been Jewish women in America since the colonial period, obviously, and um, some very prominent families during the Civil War, but the big immigration movement of the late 19th century is going to produce a lot of activist women. And part of Jewish tradition is to be philanthropic, not only for your own faith, but for your community. So these women appear everywhere in the suffrage movement and the reform movements and the labor organizing movements. There are a lot of activist leadership women. One that I, um, uh, drew attention to in the book was named Hannah Meyer Stone because Margaret Sanger, in her effort to start birth control clinics during the 20s, and her, her she wanted women to have access to birth control so that they would not self-induce abortions. Hired um, and it, but it's so controversial. She was controversial. Birth control was controversial, um, uh, and she had difficulty finding. Uh, medical staff for these clinics and she would turn to Jewish doctors and Jewish women doctors were particularly um, uh, eager to help in part because they were doubly discriminated against both as women and as Jews and were not um, getting offers at hospitals or privileges at hospitals so they could support the birth control movement.
0: Again, our guest today has been Elizabeth Griffith. Elizabeth Griffith will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. We will have links throughout our show notes so that our audience can find out more information about Elizabeth Griffith and her new book. It is entitled Formidable American Women and the Fight for Equality, 1920 through 2020. Final question for you, Elizabeth Griffith. I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about... um, What's going on with the White House and women? Women are everywhere today (laughs) in politics and religion. Every place but
1: the Oval Office. Every place. but every place.
0: What is happening there? Although we
1: got it to the vice president's mansion. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Well, the title of my epilogue is not enough because while clearly white, black, Hispanic, every kind of diverse American woman, even conservative American women, have benefited from all the changes of the last century. In um, education and employment and access to the professions and the sports and military. and I mean, they're just... Women are visibly present in places where no one would have imagined us 100 years ago. But if you look more closely at the statistics um, and you amortize them over 100 years... Women have not made as much progress as one would like. Um, women remain underpaid and lowest paid, uh, most essential, but least appreciated job categories. They're undervalued for their unpaid domestic roles. They're unbanked or underbanked. They're underrepresented in almost every profession except for kindergarten teachers and public school teachers. They were barely gotten to 50% of any other profession. Um, they're outnumbered, um, women outnumber men as eligible voters, but we are not uh, as highly represented in political um, governing and governance as we might be. Um, American women are dying in childbirth at a higher rate, and that's a racially, um, especially if you are a black or brown woman, our, our numbers in uh, infant and maternal mortality have gone down, not up over this hundred years. And women are the vast majority of victims of violence. So there's been lots of progress, but there's lots of stuff to pay attention to, which is why we need women in politics. But we are now, so after a hundred years, there are 124 women in the House of Representatives, which is um, almost 29%. We lost a woman in the Senate. So there are 25, which makes 25% of the Senate. The Senate has two Asian America, one Latina, but no black women. There have only been two black women in the Senate, Carol Mosley Braun and Kamala Harris. Uh, in the House of Representatives, there are um, now 27 black women, which is a record number, and a record number of women of color at 58. And um, frankly, it's Democrats who are contributing all the diversity to the Congress. Um, so Democratic voters are sending people who look like them. In the history of America, and this would have begun in 1924, the first was elected. There have only been 45 women governors. Um, The previous maximum high was nine. But this year, elected in the last cycle, we have 12 women governors, four Republicans and eight Democrats. And frequently from governors come presidential candidates. Among those governors are um, two gay women. In Massachusetts and Oregon, the highest number of women are represented at the lowest levels. So, women represent almost 49% of school boards and city councils, which um, these days that's a that's a front line of uh, political change and conflict. Uh, we are 32% of state legislatures, um, and women have the highest represent. And finally, it only happened in I think it happened in um, 2018. Finally, in 2018, a woman was elected in South Carolina. So now every state has one, at least one woman in every legislative body of, of the state level. Um, um, and where there are the most women at, in state legislatures are the legislatures that pay the least. Nevada and Colorado have majorities of women in their lower house and in their um, house of delegates. And those women have Introduced legislation, passed legislation, like getting rid of um, taxes on um, female um, tampons and pads, or or diapers, or things that only um, that seem to benefit women more than men, whereas men do not pay that surcharge, among many other things. Um, so, having it's always been important to have different kinds of people at tables that are making decisions. Uh, and I think women continue to make a difference no matter how equal their lives become with those of men and all kinds of women, um, all the diversity of, of, of gender in America needs to be represented. Um, and so we're doing, you know, we're doing really well, but we aren't there yet. We certainly had a lot of women running last time and we already have, um, the, the Republicans have a candidate in the race already. Um, and, uh, you know, she could be a dark horse and end up um, uh, in the in the in the Oval Office. There'll be a lot to watch, um, but we do always have to pay attention to whether the women who are running are the women who are supporting the issues that would benefit the largest number of women. And then that, well, I guess the final thing I'll say, um, following the Dobbs decision, no matter how many rights American women have. If they do not have rights to basic decisions about how their body, how they use their body, the choices they make related to their body, um, then that really takes you back to ground zero when you're talking about equal rights and being treated the same, being treated as an adult citizen in the country equal to male adult citizens.
0: Thank you, Elizabeth Griffith. Um, So well said, and uh, the book is just getting wonderful reviews online and elsewhere. It's entitled Formidable American Women, of course. Thank you, Elizabeth Griffith, for being here. We will have links so that our audience can find out more about Elizabeth Griffith and her new book, Formidable. We'll have those same links going to the Smithsonian Associates where we can learn more about Elizabeth Griffith's upcoming presentation entitled American Women and the Fight for Equality. There is a lot to watch. We hope you come back to Elizabeth Griffith and update us (laughs) thank you and please I just think this is such an important topic I know our audience is just going to love this I can't recommend this highly enough for our audience thank you for your time thanks for your your generous reading and for all the uh, research you've done on this book congratulations on it my best to you
1: thank you so much I appreciated the invitation and the opportunity thank you
0: My thanks to author, Smithsonian associate, Elizabeth Griffith, and her new book, Formidable, American Women and the Fight for Equality, 1920 to 2020. Thank you, Elizabeth, for reading today. Elizabeth Griffith will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up, so please check out our show notes today for more details. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show, especially during Women's History Month. You'll find more information about Women's History Month in our show notes today. My thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience on radio and podcast. Please be well and be safe during these times. Please be kind to one another. And let's do better. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast, Smithsonian Associate Author Interview Series Celebrating Women's History Month. Thanks, everybody. And we will see you next